Support for this podcast comes from TradePoint Atlantic, the former home of Bethlehem Steel and now one of the largest, most strategically significant intermodal global logistics hubs in the country. Learn more about TradePoint Atlantic and its commitment to preserving the story of Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point at TradePointAtlantic.com. Welcome back to Sparrows Point, an American Steel story. I'm Aaron Henkin, and we've made it here to the final episode in this series where we're going to fast forward to the present. We're going to learn about what's happening at Sparrows Point today, and we'll spend a little time thinking about what sorts of lessons the ghost of that now-gone industrial giant Bethlehem Steel might have to teach us in the here and now. We're going to start this episode on-site at Sparrows Point, in a big room that used to be the marshalling room for the steelworkers at the plant. Today, it's sort of a stylish conference room slash auditorium with some decorative tributes to the point's industrial past. There's an old aerial photo of the mill from the 1950s, a 3D model of the mill as it appeared in the 1980s, and a collage of storyboards that show a timeline of the mill's history. This room is kind of a reminder of this site's past. Uh, but if you look around also, you could see our, our branding, the TradePoint Atlantic logo, the map of our new master plan. So there, it's also pointing towards the future. And this is a, a, you know, a great room that we use for our community outreach and events and activities. This is Aaron Tamarchio. He's the Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs for TradePoint Atlantic. That's the company that's currently redeveloping Sparrows Point Peninsula. For me, it all started in the summer of 2014 where uh, the company that uh, I worked for, the parent company, Redwood Capital, was looking at acquiring Sparrows Point from the owners that had purchased it right after the steel mill closed. You know, they had begun negotiations and, you know, we were outreaching to state and local officials to let them know that there was a local buyer that's interested in acquiring the site. And the site at this point in history, 2014, when TradePoint Atlantic came on the scene, was still an active demolition zone. This was only two years after the mill closed and those final steelworkers worked their last day on the job. So when I arrived here on site, uh, there were a lot of the remaining mill buildings still here. Uh, They were kind of shells of themselves. Some buildings were just left as is, like as if people walked off the job that day. So it was a little eerie. Um, And then there were parts of the site where, you know, there was piles of rubble where buildings were taken down. So it was in different states of, of demolition. You know, kind of uh, appear to be something out of Mad Max, like some post-apocalyptic industrial wasteland, uh, and that's that's generally what the feeling you would get when you <laughs> when you were here about six years ago, um, and and just the the sheer mass work that needed to be done to bring the mill down, get the site ready for redevelopment, work on the environmental remediation. It was just a lot. So when you came here and you sat back and you looked at what, all that was going on you knew that there was a lot of work that needed to be done to kind of get the site ready uh, for development. Considering the environmental mess they had on their hands and the amount of work they were willing to put in to clean it up, you might be wondering what TradePoint Atlantic saw in Sparrows Point that made it worthwhile. Well, it really was the same thing that Frederick Wood saw in the place all the way back in the 1880s when he first showed up and found an isolated swamp in the Patapsco River. Remember, Sparrows Point was built where it was built because it was next to the Atlantic Ocean and next to a major railroad. 
Now, more than a century later, the mill was gone, but TradePoint Atlantic saw the location still had a lot going for it. And that was the deep water port. That was the rail access. We actually have access to CSX and Norfolk Southern. They're two class one railroads that serve our region. And then we've got uh, access onto major highways. I mean, we literally have two on and exit ramps on 695 here that connect to 95 north and south. And then the fact that we have 3,300 acres of industrial zone land. Uh, it just, you know, really looked like this was a site for logistics, e-commerce, manufacturing, uh, transportation, uh, port-related activities. So, you know, that was, the, that was the plan. Today, they're about five years into that plan, and so far they've built a little over 8 million square feet of new industrial warehouse distribution logistics facilities. And we have well over 20 tenants. In total, right now, as we sit here, there's 8,000 jobs happening here on site. We believe we are well within sight of achieving that 10,000 job mark within the next year uh, if a couple of the tenants we're working with come to fruition. So at that point, we'll be 60% built out with already achieving 10,000 jobs. So the tenants, who are they, right? Most of them are businesses focused on logistics and supply. In other words, distribution warehouses. Under Armour has a distribution building there. Home Depot has a two-building complex there. Volkswagen has an import vehicle processing facility there. And then there's the elephant in the room, Amazon, who's got two major warehouses on site now at Sparrows Point. To state the obvious, none of these businesses are making steel. So Sparrows Point is still called Sparrows Point, but, you know, is it still Sparrows Point? When you think about Sparrows Point, it is the iconic American story. Uh, the fact that this facility supplied uh, armaments for two world wars and helped generations of American families, uh, Baltimore regional families, um, you know, send their kids to college, have a decent wage, own their homes. I mean, it was the proverbial American dream that really rooted itself here. A lot of community identity was tied to what happened on this site. A lot of community identity, a lot of community pride. So, you know, seeing the mill rise in its height in the mid-20th century and begin a slow decline towards the back half of the 20th century really created an inflection point where, you know, people were kind of concerned about uh, the past. They wanted to kind of the security and, and the feeling of belonging to something bigger. And, uh, you know, when that was declining and ultimately stopped operating, I think everybody was wondering what happened. And, and a lot of people were angry. They were angry because they would blame globalization, uh, the fact that you know, American steel mills couldn't compete with their foreign um, counterparts. So there was just this angst about, you know, American industry versus a globalized version of industry. And I, I look at it as to where we are today as instead of lamenting on that point, we actually took the assets from the mill and turned it into a platform that could compete globally now and participate in the global economy. Okay, real talk and full disclosure here for a minute. You've probably heard me mention that TradePoint Atlantic is a sponsor of this podcast series. And here in this last episode, I want to make sure that you as a listener get a proper sense of the good stuff they've got going on down there at Sparrows Point right now. But I also know, and you know, 
and all the former steelworkers know that what's not there anymore are union manufacturing jobs. Those are gone. And Aaron Tamarchio of TradePoint Atlantic, he knows it too. The community and some people affiliated with the mill, you know, have adjusted to that new reality. Some have not. But, you know, I view what happened here because of the, the, the personal connections within the families that worked here, within the communities that identified so closely to the mill, is, is that of a, of a death, a death of, of a family member. And you, when you go through a, a traumatic experience like that, you go through those, those stages of grief where it's disbelief. It's uh, disbelief then turns to anger. And then, then, you know, some people search for some sort of absolution of what kind of what, what ultimately does this mean and what's the next step. And I think we're at that stage where we've accepted, you know, what's happened and we have a plan as working us to the future. We're going to let some other folks weigh in with some critical thoughts on the economic pluses and minuses of that future in just a few minutes. But first, I want to bring you from Sparrow's Point to the nearby town of Dundalk to meet this woman. I'm Amy Menzer. I'm the executive director of Dundalk Renaissance Corporation, which is a 19-year-old nonprofit community development organization focused on um, revitalizing the Dundalk community uh, in the aftermath of decades of industrial decline and job losses. Amy Menzer moved to Dundalk in 2004. When we met for an interview, we sat outside on lawn chairs under some trees in this beautiful sort of old-fashioned town square-style park called Heritage Park. It was part of the original town plan for Dundalk. And um, we are across the street from a brand new Dundalk Elementary School building that was built on the same land where it was originally constructed. We are surrounded by a National Register Historic District with a charming stucco homes with sort of steeply pitched roofs that have an English village style feel. And then a great uh, historic shopping center, one of the first shopping centers in the state of Maryland uh, that was built in the 1920s and 30s. It's a community that has great bones and is very walkable. It's a breezy, sunny day. There's a gazebo nearby where a dad is out playing with his kids. There's also a granite monument here in this park that's engraved with the names of Sparrows Point steelworkers who died on the job. And, and the legacy of the steel mill is very much embedded in the heart of this community as the location of that memorial demonstrates. Ms. Menzer is a real Dundalk booster. She's all about trying to convince new people to move into the neighborhood. She'll tell you about Dundalk's 43 miles of waterfront, the waterfront homes and parks, the new small businesses popping up. And by the end of her spiel, I mean, you kind of want to buy a house in Dundalk. But Ms. Menzer will confess she never imagined herself landing here. She grew up in a suburb, and she didn't really intend to spend the rest of her life in a suburb. Somehow along the way, though, the idea of suburbs became sort of an academic fascination for her. I am interested, intrigued in how our suburbs, as they age, what happens to them? And how do they stay viable as communities over time? And the history of the community is compelling and people are very proud 
of that history. They're not afraid of hard work, rolling up their sleeves and digging in. There's a, you know, I think a pretty widespread desire to help other people in the community and a sort of can-do attitude that has served this community well over the over the decades, even as it's been weathering decline. When she moved to Dundalk, Ms. Menzer says she understood the importance of the steel mill for the community and for the workers, but she also didn't see that legacy as something that was going to ultimately determine the fate of the entire town forever. She says by the time the plant closed, it was down to around 3,000 employees, and a lot of those employees no longer lived in Dundalk anyway. Further suburbanization and the construction of the Beltway had drawn away residents wanting bigger and newer houses. Nonetheless, when Sparrows Point did finally close its doors, it wounded an already diminished Dundalk, not just economically, but psychologically. I see, on the one hand, pride in the legacy. I see care and concern about people that are are grappling with addiction or, or challenges with finding jobs. But I also see people who are, who see all the decline that's occurred from their neighbor not maintaining their home as well, either because the person living there now you know, it's it's owned by somebody who lives in another state and they're not focused on how it looks or the person that's living there is elderly and physically can't keep it up and doesn't have the funds to maintain it. So, you know, those are two of, I'm sure, many reasons. So there's, I also see this sort of splitting off of a sense that, you know, there was what Dundalk was and, and, how proud we were of that. And then there's who lives here now and how, um, how that's not, that's not Dundalk, a sense that, you know, those people are bringing this community down. And the question that I try to prompt people with at times is, well, for people to move in, there had to be people who left. (laughs) And, that is a normal process of a community over time. And, you know, I don't live in Rockville where I grew up, you know, but what happens is that, you know, who lives here shifts and part of people's uh, processing of what happened um, with job losses and economic decline gets um, mapped on to new people who move to the community who might be lower income and might be people of color as opposed to the more predominantly white population that was here in the community's heyday. And it it leads to, I think, some false explanations that people make for themselves of what's the problem and why. For some of the older, whiter residents in Dundalk, there's this narrative of, I used to be able to provide for my family. I used to make a family-supporting wage with a hard day's work. Values have changed. And for these older folks' kids, kids who might be having trouble finding work themselves right now, that family narrative can change flavor from bittersweet to just plain bitter. Let's take a minute here and think about the idea of nostalgia. 
Nostalgia was actually once considered a mental illness. <laughs> this is Deborah Rudisill. A few years ago, she wrote an article about nostalgia where she interviewed psychologists who look at how nostalgia affects the decisions people make. During the Civil War, people were believed to have died from nostalgia. Um, this kind of yearning for their life before the war. I think nostalgia can be both a very positive and a very negative emotion. Positive in that nostalgia can comfort us when we're sad uh, by helping us to remember better times. But nostalgia can be pretty negative if it prevents us from taking advantage of new opportunities and looking forward to a new future. The generation that worked at Sparrows Point, they're getting older. A lot of them are dying off. But what's left in the generation after them is that bitterness. This beautiful world that they heard about from their parents and their grandparents when jobs were plentiful and they could make good money and support their families is now gone. And they're very angry about that. And that anger and bitterness is... Uh, preventing people from looking ahead and preventing them from making the kinds of changes in their own lives and their own communities that would lead to a better future, not just for them as individuals, but for everyone. And we see how that bitterness and anger, which in some ways is justified. I mean, people at Sparrows Point, the retirees, really got a raw deal when they lost their pensions and their and their uh, health insurance. And the community as a whole is struggling to deal with deindustrialization, as so many communities around the country are. But when you take that bitterness and anger and regret and use it to attack others who aren't in any better of a situation than you and maybe in an even worse situation, rather than uh, using it as a, a kind of springboard for change, then you find yourself where we are now with so much division and so much um, lies masquerading as truth by people who have every reason to promote division now as they d did in the 1930s, uh, people who benefit from keeping working people divided. And so this is where we see nostalgia becoming toxic. We've talked before about the analogy of Bethlehem Steel and Sparrows Point being like an epic civilization. It's a lost civilization now, literally demolished, capped off, paved over. But some of the voices of that era are still with us to bear testimony. And if you've listened through this series up to now, you've heard a pretty thorough retelling of the rise and fall of that civilization. And so now, as we get ready to bring this series to its conclusion, we're going to ask a question that swivels our focus from the past to the future. And that question is, for better or worse, what are the most important lessons that the ghost of Bethlehem Steel has to teach us about building a sustainable economic future? In certain ways, the lessons are obvious. This is Dave Conrad, longtime Bethlehem Steel manager who walked the company through its Chapter 11 bankruptcy. When you're successful, I would argue whether that's as an individual or as some type of organization, you can't get complacent. You have to keep looking forward. You have to keep evolving. You have to keep changing with the times. 
And if you don't, our free market system says you won't survive. Overconfidence, stubbornness, laziness, these are the unfortunate side effects of success, Mr. Conrad says. And if you lack the humility to adapt, your bubble is going to burst. I think in also a certain way, Bethlehem Steel was a little microcosm of society as a whole. And even in today's world and in today's politics, I think you see it playing out. Take Sparrow's point. Let's say at the end there was roughly 3,000 jobs there. And those jobs paid at a certain level. The steel mill jobs are gone, but now there's new jobs at Sparrow's Point. There's lots of very big distribution centers. And my understanding is they've hired about 3,000 people. So from a net impact, 3,000 jobs of a steel mill went away and 3,000 jobs for distribution centers were gained. On the surface, what's the problem? But the difference is those 3,000 new jobs are paying about half, probably, of the 3,000 older jobs. Mr. Conrad says you can see this trend playing out in the country as a whole over the past 30 or 40 years. The middle class has not been progressing. It's been regressing. The lower wages are part of it. So are the kinds of jobs that are available right now. It's one thing to make a product, to take rocks out of the ground, iron ore, and value add that rock out of the ground of finished products. Well, it's another thing to make those finished products overseas, bring them in, and then what we do is just distribute them. There's not as much value added there. Baltimore now is a service economy town, and so you have to have interpersonal skills. Down there, you did not. Labor historian Bill Berry. You could be the grumpiest, ugliest, nastiest person. If you were good working in the mill, your job was there. But it's a whole different world, and a lot of them are having a very, very difficult time adjusting to that. And I think that you're going to find now, after the pandemic, Amazon's hiring 170,000 people. And those are all people whose lives were working retail, at stores, at the malls, doing movie theaters, doing theater. You just don't know. And I think that it's a really, really challenging time. We're in a heyday of Amazon, right? We're in the heyday of consumerism. J.M. Giordano, photojournalist who covered the closing of Sparrow's Point. Once that bubble bursts, and it will, I mean, you go back to the 50s, and if I said I'm a time traveler from 19, from 2000, and there's no more Bethlehem Steel, they'd have put you in, the, you know, they, they'd have locked you away, right? They thought you were nuts. Um, that's, we're seeing it now. And, and again, unfor- unfortunately, we're seeing it now with no unions. We, we've reverted back to the 1920s. Underpaid workers, long hours, no union reps, at-will firings, you know, short bathroom breaks. This is what the peninsula was like before the, before the unions, right? So it's gone from manufacturing to consumer, right, to distribution. And the lesson that I would say that you would get from the best deals is 
you know, please don't put your faith in these big companies because they're not going to be there for you. They're just not going to be. They don't, you know, they, they use this term like family and they throw that around. It's it's the, I mean, that's that's an Orwellian thing to me. Right? That's, that's the big brother. When they say we're big happy, they're not. You're the farthest thing from a family. But people need to work. And, and I, you know, and not everyone has the ability to save or, you know, for whatever reason. Um, but I think the lesson is, is that these companies won't be there for you when you when you think they will be they just won't be there the uh sale and repurposing of sparrows point now as an industrial distribution center is actually i'm think is very positive i think that is actually kind of the silver lining of of a sad story mark reuter author of sparrows point making steel the rise and ruin of american industrial might Yes, the wages of those companies out there is a fraction of what the steel workers were getting. This is, they were, they're not middle-class wages. But at least they were able to repurpose a mill for relatively economically. Baltimore County, because that's Baltimore County property, was, was, was smart to decide when the mill closed that it needed to stay with all of its environmental problems, which persist as industrial property. It had an excellent location. And, you know, they saw, which I see everywhere I go, that the problem of this city and surrounding areas is not housing per se. It's not homelessness per se. It's a lack of jobs. It's a lack of jobs. And a lack of jobs that, that, that people who live in this city can get and, and, and rise up in. So at least Sparrows Point did not require hundreds of millions of dollars in federal financing for luxury townhouses. Uh, it's a beautiful site. You go out there and it's beautiful, windswept, but the land is problematic and they made, I think, a very good decision to have it now as one of the key areas for working class jobs in Baltimore. Not ideal, but at least we have that. So hopefully, you know, the Sparrows Point does provide some lessons, um, both of, you know, incredible um, valor in a way. And I always come back to these men and some women, but these thousands of men who made steel day and night, you know, who uh, and knew that, you know, um, there was blood, their blood in making steel. We all need to survive. This is Lonnie Vick, former Sparrows Point steelworker who started work in the shipyards in 1970. As hard as Bethlehem Steel was, it helped us to survive. It provided livelihood for countless thousands of people throughout the state of Maryland. Uh, tax bases and homes and you name it. But it doesn't mean that you are beholden to them. You're not beholden to them because you gave them your lifeblood. You gave them your life sweat. You provided a service to them. And it allowed the owners, the stockholders, and everybody else to prosper. And that I would hope that this nation would take a, another look at the industrial province of this nation and try and go back to it again. It doesn't mean they have to go back to the same type of industry, but we need to go back to an industrial base in this nation. 
because of the spinoff of the various jobs that grow from industrial complexes, whether it be steel making, um, shipbuilding, auto making. So that's what I kind of take away from it. And also I take away from it that you don't have to be afraid of doing an honest day's work for a day's pay. Now, the day's pay might not be an honest day's pay for your honest day's work. They don't, don't, don't necessarily always go together, right? But don't be afraid to work. Today's pay might not be an honest day's pay for an honest day's work, but don't be afraid to work. That sentiment right there from Mr. Vic is going to close this final chapter in our series. And I want to leave you with his words because what Mr. Vic just said, I don't know if there's a better possible way to encapsulate the dilemma we're facing today in the shadow of the now gone Sparrows Point steel mill, in the industrial vacuum it left behind, in the wake of the departed union jobs that made a living for steel workers a generation ago. We can't help but feel haunted in a way when we hear this story by the ghost of a heyday that's come and gone. But I think of what we've learned about this idea of grief and nostalgia, these feelings of loss and mourning that are completely natural, but at the same time can also get us stuck in the mud, wall us off from the present and the future. I mean, we've learned that the Achilles heel of Bethlehem Steel was its failure to adapt, its refusal to change with the times. And so now, as we sift through the relics of this lost civilization, maybe in a way it's our duty to let it go, to take the lessons we can from its successes and failures, to accept a certain sense of closure, and now to turn our gaze to the future with clear eyes. And even if that future doesn't look too bright at the moment, even if that hill looks like it's gonna be a mighty steep climb, even if it seems like the deck is stacked against us, if we don't put one foot in front of the other, if we don't organize and prioritize in new ways, we're never going to know if there's another heyday on the horizon. All right, I'm going to stop pontificating now and pass the mic to someone far better qualified to share a final thought here at the end of this series. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. She's been joining us here at the end of each episode to share her insights. And Anita... I guess I'll ask you the same question I asked a lot of folks this episode. What do you think are the most important lessons the story of Sparrows Point has to teach us where we are today and on into the years ahead? Well, I appreciate the many insights that so many of the people provided on this episode. I'm not sure I have much to add, but I do have an observation, which is that I think that just as Bethlehem Steel's presence on the point was a reflection of where the economy was at that moment, that is, Bethlehem Steel provided the steel for city building and for infrastructure construction and the steel for two world wars, just as that was a rational use of the site during the period when it was ascendant. Trade Point Atlantic's use of the site now, the presence of those distribution warehouses, is a really rational, smart use of the site. I think that the challenge for us now is to figure out how to make these new kinds of jobs work for American workers the way steel jobs might have worked in the past. That's the challenge. And I don't think it's necessarily the job of a museum 
to answer those questions. The job of the Baltimore Museum of Industry is to present context and perspective and to encourage people to think about these questions about how we make this economy that we're in now work for everybody. Yeah, I've been curious to ask you what it's like to be a Baltimore Museum of Industry in a town where the narrative seems to be that it's in a post-industrial decline. That's an interesting tightrope that you and curators here, I suppose, need to walk every time you put up an exhibition. That's true. It's a great question. One way to approach it is sort of the nostalgic approach, um, celebrating industries that got us to where we are, like Bethlehem Steel. But I think it's equally important to consider the term industry more broadly. And although we may not be a manufacturing economy anymore, there are many industries in Baltimore that drive our economy today, from distribution to medicine to cybersecurity. And so there are a lot of really interesting questions to ask and stories to tell about what industry is today and how that's changed life for people here in Baltimore. Before I forget, Anita, I do want to say a couple of thanks to some folks who really helped me with research and background for this podcast. Michelle Stefano is a really talented historian who did a great video documentary a few years ago. It's called Mill Stories. Lendl Tellington, uh, a really great, thoughtful filmmaker working on his own family's history in the Sparrows Point mill town of Turner Station. Deb Weiner is a really hardworking historian who's connected me with and uh, done oral histories of her own with lots of Sparrows Point steelworkers. I learned a lot from all these folks. This podcast has got a whole brain trust behind it. And I know that's how the BMI works as well, especially when you're working on an exhibition as big as the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. Let me give you a chance, Anita, to talk about some of the different minds and voices and talents that you've put together, brought into the fold to create this exhibition in its different facets. Well, thank you for that question. Um, as you've hinted at, this has been a very community-focused project throughout. Um, we internally at the Museum of Industry certainly do not claim to know all the answers. And what we really aimed to do throughout this whole Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project initiative was to go out into the community and to listen. So that was really sort of a, a core component of how we operated throughout this process. And beyond that, although it sounds cliche, this has really truly been a team effort here at the museum. The initiative is something that has sort of captured the hearts and minds of everybody on staff. Everybody is engaged in telling these stories, in developing programs, and putting together exhibitions, and conducting oral histories, in thinking about how the story of Bethlehem Steel is so central to the story of industry in Baltimore and the stories we tell here at the museum. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story, is a co-production of WYPR and the Baltimore Museum of Industry as part of the BMI's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. You can learn more about the museum and the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project at thebmi.org. Special thanks to BMI staff members Ani Gellis, Beth Maloney, Anita Kassoff, and Joseph Abel. 
Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for providing music for the series. This podcast is made possible with generous support from TradePoint Atlantic and Maryland Humanities. For Sparrows Point, an American Steel story, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.